Well, take with me your copy of the Word of God and open to the book of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Um, We will begin by reading, though, from Genesis all the way through Genesis chapter 4. So turn to Genesis chapter 4 to begin. Well, homesickness is uh, apparently a real thing. I mean, those of you who are college students with us, we, you know, the rest of us, those of you who are college students who have moved here for college from other places, uh, this is home for us, and it's home for you in a real way, but it's not real home. You're going, many of you, home for Christmas as you went home for Thanksgiving, and we miss you when you're not around here, and your family misses you when you are not home, and so you will go home, and sometimes colleges will identify homesickness as a thing and give you some advice for how to handle that. They advise you not to go home all the time if you're close enough, but to settle in and get used to college. Those of you who have moved here in the last year or so, and it's a number of you, uh, may be sick for home. Home may still be across the country. Now, the voices and the sounds and the tastes and the people and the sights of that place loom large in your imagination. And eventually, we pray this will truly become home. But for now, you may be a bit homesick. Homesickness is a real thing, apparently, uh, like clinical, or at least at some point, Tiffany Watt Smith has been writing a book on human emotions, and she says that a whole Swiss army was incapacitated for a time due to homesickness. It began with the soldiers, she writes, being distracted by thoughts of home, often brought on by hearing cowbells chiming in the distance, and it would progress to lethargy and sadness, frequent sighs and disturbed sleep. Strange physical symptoms followed, lesions, heart palpitations, and from there, stupidity of mind, a kind of dementia. Some soldiers died of the illness, wasting away from the refusal to eat. Uh, Hychondria of the heart, I think they called it. The only known cure was to return home, and many tried to, only to be punished by death. And in 1688, Swiss physician Johannes Hoffer published a report on this mysterious epidemic, naming the problem nostalgia, a mashup of the Greek word nostos, which means homecoming, or return in algos, which means pain. Smith writes, homesickness is a real thing. Well, I wonder how the couple that we're about to read about in chapter 4 of Genesis would have described their experience in the loss of home. Let's read together Genesis chapter 4. And now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. 
Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away today from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he named the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahuel, and Mahuel fathered Methusel, Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, in the spread of sin throughout the world, and it began here, we see the homesickness of humanity. And it's not the kind of homesickness that we've talked about at the head, merely not being home. There is an actual sickness at the heart of the human race. We are sick from not being home, even as we are not home because we have a sickness, the sickness of sin. We are not at home with each other. We are not at home with the ground. This world is hard. We are not at home with God. And we are not even at home with ourselves. Well, how did we get here? Uh, For those of you who are with us from other places, you may have moved here or from college, I've addressed you both. Uh, That's an easy enough question. If you're somewhat sarcastic, you might say by train or in a car. If you are interested in taking me up on the question, if I were to ask you, how did you get here? You might give me a little bit like the story of your life or what led you to this or that school or to this or that job or to this or that region. But when we ask ourselves as the human race, how did we get here? Oh, we need help from the outside. We need a word from God 
For each of us entered this picture by birth, and we just picked up where those before us have left off. And it's not obvious on the face of it how we got here. But God has spoken to us a word about how we, we got here. Israel needed this, this little story we've just read, and they need chapter 3, the chapter before it, which we're going to spend time in the rest of the morning. Israel would have received this story first after God had set his affection on Abraham and his children, and they became a nation. They were enslaved in Egypt, and he delivered them miraculously through the Red Sea. And there at Sinai, the, the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, began to be given to Moses. And Israel had an answer to the question, how did we get here? And what is our problem exactly? And who is God? And we need the answer just as well today for the story and the description that we have on this ancient page is ever relevant for our present age and day. Uh, Kent Hughes, commentator uh, and pastor, retired pastor now, wrote himself of this very chapter we've just read in the 20th century stood as the unchallenged century of violence. And the 21st century is continuing in the same vein. The modern state has proven itself the greatest killer of all time. By 1990, state violence had been responsible for the unnatural deaths of 125 million people during that century, which is more than the state had succeeded in destroying in all the human history up to 1900. Our own country is its own mixture of the good and the bad and the ugly. Murder rates and crime rates and theft and school shootings are ever a thing upon us. Our iPhones have not helped us out. They have only helped us go about our sin. Not only, but they have not solved the problem of sin. We may be tempted because of what is assumed around us that Humanity is always and only progressing, and things are always and only getting better. But that is not necessarily the case. Things may get better in a place and for a time. But as we see on the page here, and as we see in our own headlines, and as we know from our own heart, the heart at the heart of humanity has not, has not changed. Violence uh, continues. And in this very chapter here, chapter 4, which we've read, we see the, the spread of the matter from two brothers in a field and a murder from envy and passion then to a man, Lamech, who boasts about it in the streets. A brazenness that Cain did not have. Cain was a wanderer and lamented to some extent what had happened. Oh, Lamech needs none of the Lord. You see a hardening of the human heart and race even. There in that chapter four, we've seen the the devaluation of human life and even of God's gift of of marriage and the taking of two wives. There we are, a chapter past the fall of humanity into sin, which is where we'll be today. Israel needed this, needed this story, this answer from God about how did we get here? And we need the answer as well. And so it's the first stop that we'll make in this five-part preaching series, which we're calling... Out of our lonely exile, it's a slight modification of that line that we sang this morning about Israel captive 
in lonely exile here. So we all are today, not at home. We'll spend five weeks and this morning we'll open with the question, how did we get here? And we'll answer it with Genesis chapter three. So flip back one chapter in four steps. How did we get here? Humanity in four steps that began with one question, with one question, verses one through five, Genesis chapter three. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So our step into the direction we find ourselves today begins with a simple question. Did God actually say it didn't begin with a curious question what's it like outside the garden no there was no need to ask that question unprompted the garden is where God had set humanity it was the beginning of a project to fill the whole world with the glory of God in the descendants of Adam and Eve as they were given the whole earth, every creature in the sky and every creature under the ocean for their dominion and a gift. The Lord who is benevolent had given generously to Adam and to Eve, but this question offers a crafty suggestion. It's a crafty question in who he's asking in the first two chapters of the Bible. We see that God made Adam the man first. And then he made Eve as a helper for the man. And together they bear the image of God. He had spoken to Adam concerning the ground rules. He'd spoken to Adam concerning a particular tree not to eat. Though he was given the whole earth and given every other tree for eating. And God had been benevolent and generous, generous, generous with us. This is a crafty question who it's asked. He said to the woman, it says. Now, Adam would have instructed Eve. Adam would have been the first preacher, the first man, the first husband. He was given charge over humanity in the first place, his own family. Eve would have known the command of God not to eat of this tree lest they die. Adam would have been given that first. The serpent goes to the woman to undo and undermine the order of creation that God had put into it. It's also crafty in what the serpent asks. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He, he seeks to subvert craftily the word of God. That's the first place to go. The, the character of God. Did he actually say? There's a careful answer that Eve offers. The snake, the serpent, had twisted the word of God by, by adding 
to the word of God. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Well, that's certainly not what God said. God said, don't eat of that one tree. Otherwise, every tree is for you. The serpent says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He seeks to put words in God's mouth to paint him as ungenerous. But he also seeks to take away from God's word and to subtract. For they were given generously of the garden, but now they're painting God as more restrictive. Well, the woman in her reply, this would be easy to miss. And that itself is instructive for us. But God said, let's see. And the woman said to the serpent, verse two, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now she's twisted the word of God as well and compensating for the, the manipulation of the word that she's hearing. She has manipulated the word on her own. Did you catch it? We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. For backstory, only a chapter before, God had emphasized his generosity and that they could eat from every tree in the garden minus the one. And she is now downplaying his generosity. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But then she also adds to God's word as if we may assume to, to protect it. You may not eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which is not what God had said. Now, maybe she'd do well not to touch it, but God didn't say don't touch it. And so the serpent has, in a crafty way, thrown her a question that twisted the word of God by adding to it and taking away from it. And almost as if he knew precisely how this would work, because his question was absurd. She is compensated by twisting it the other way. And she has as well painted God as ungenerous or at least a little less generous and benevolent than he is. And that was enough for a takedown. For after her careful answer following the serpent's crafty question, we get from the serpent now a calculated reply. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now we read this and all kinds of questions come to mind. And this isn't the sermon for asking them. What I'm putting your attention to is what we have here in a direct contradiction of the word of God that did not start there, but began with a subtle question that undermined the word of God and the character and the goodness of God. And this direct contradiction of the word of God is enticing now, and it is plausible now because of the serpent's crafty way in to Eve. How did we get here? Well, we got here in the first place because a serpent came to the woman with his own word about her home. 
And what began with a subtle, crafty question now moves swiftly to action. Step one, one question. Now we move to four senses. Four senses are engaged. In the first place, Eve has heard what the serpent has said and has considered it. In verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that's the hearing, she took of its fruit and she ate. She saw, she took, she ate. Swift movement to action. She was primed by the serpent, caused to think and to doubt the goodness of God and his word, to not see him as benevolent, to not see all that she had been given. The serpent directly contradicts God. Now she's ready to hear it. And now she looks at the fruit and it's desirable and it could make me wise. And, and she's talked herself very quickly. She's talked herself very quickly into forsaking, forsaking her Lord. She saw that the tree was good for food and in staring at the sin and staring at into her temptation and by fantasizing about what it would be like to have of the tree that he denies, she does not see the Lord's goodness and every other thing that is around her. She can't see it. In taking of the fruit, in touching the fruit, she's not able to see all that the Lord has generously given to her that surrounds her all around. That is how sin is, isn't it? It calls us to take something when we've been given something. It causes us to see and imagine goodness somewhere where the Lord has said bad and not to see his goodness everywhere, everywhere else. She took of its fruit and she, she ate. And this is, this is always the outcome of our belief. What we believe about God and his word and what is true about the world will always give way to action. So you can trace your beliefs back from the things that you, that you do. And praise God when we repent for sins and we turn to Christ. That itself is proof that something has happened in the heart and that we see God truly. She saw, she took, she ate. And in that moment, she had shut God out. She acted like a mere creature, not as one created by a creator. She acted on the conviction that she is wise unto herself, that her senses are all that she needs in order to navigate her life. And oh, you know firsthand and by observation when we're honest with ourselves how poor we are at judging what is good for us and what is pleasing by our senses. Uh, we need wisdom from the outside. Well, if step one was an external beginning to this matter of our disobedience with a question, this step two doesn't let us blame it on the serpent, does it? 
This comes from inside the heart of the woman. She makes, she makes the move here. We sin, in other words. We aren't merely acted upon or provoked to behave in certain ways. Well, that's what happened. But what's worse than, what's worse than what we just read here? Well, doing nothing at all. Look at the rest of verse 6. And she also gave to her husband who was with her. Well, and then he ate. So here's Adam basically doing nothing. He's receiving the fruit and eating it himself. And in the course of the Bible's story, all of this trouble that we're in, the groaning of the world, the pain of the world, and the sin of the world will be pinned in its beginning on Adam. For he was created first and given God's word and he did not guard his wife in the garden and even as he watched his wife be enticed by the serpent he had sinned and he ate which was the climax of his own temptation and sin and he ate to his own and our own death so how did we get here well it began with a question from the serpent and it It began in that subversive way, but it advanced by means of four senses shutting out God himself from subversion now to an act of open rebellion. This is the story of how we get to Genesis chapter four, which is the beginning of the rest of history so far. Now a third step, a third step which involves incalculable losses, incalculable losses. This takes us from verse 17 to 19. You know, when you make any decision, you, uh, you may weigh costs and benefits. And sometimes you may nail it. You thought something would cost so much, would be so difficult, and it came with a certain benefit that you anticipated. Uh, sometimes we get it terribly wrong. Uh, The cost-benefit calculation in this case was terribly, terribly wrong. We see it in the immediate consequences and effects of this decision to take and eat. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the, from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Home is changed. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, well, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. True enough, true enough, but not the whole story. How gracious was God to to come and to walk and to ask and to ask and to ask and to ask, only revealing the extent of our rebellion. No, it's a terribly sad, sad story. And these are the immediate consequences that we are alienated 
from one another. We're not at home with one another. Did you see this in verse seven? The eyes of both were open. They knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. They hide from themselves. They're ashamed and it's real shame. And this is how the world will be going forward. They're not comfortable with each other, even man and wife. They hide behind leaves, but then they hide behind trees. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Oh, it was never meant to be that way. We weren't meant to hide from the Lord. We were created in the garden and placed there with the perfect knowledge of the Lord and his presence. There's nothing like it. Nothing like it. Well, you have to wonder how Adam and Eve must have talked about those days once we get to Genesis chapter four, which we began reading. Well, they hide behind the trees. It's a sad, sad picture. Hiding behind leaves, alienated from one another, hiding behind trees, not at home with God. And then as God asks questions and they blame shift and tell stories, they hide from themselves behind the tales that they are weaving and the stories of what happened. There isn't a plain acknowledgement of what they've done. God, I'm glad that you've come. I'm so sorry. I'm ashamed. I don't, something has happened. You said it would happen. This is what you said would happen and I disobeyed you. There's none of that. There's finger pointing. There is not an acknowledgement of what has taken place. There's a, there's a presumptuous thinking that they can fool God. Oh, humanity. And all the seeds are sown right here in this fall. The immediate consequences of sin's entrance into the world are apparent right away. And we resonate with them. And then there are long-term consequences. We have a string of three curses here. In verse 14, he addresses the serpent. In verse 16, the woman. In verse 17, he addresses Adam, the order in which they entered the scene in Genesis 3. And for the serpent, the, the curse is going to be humiliation and defeat. Because you've done this, cursed you beyond all, all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You brought death into the world and so you will eat death all your life. This doesn't necessarily or so much speak to the fact that the snake had legs or something like that. The location is the accent. You're on your belly. You're eating the dust. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between the offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, she gets pain and difficulty excuse me, discontent. Surely I will multiply your pain in childbearing in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Not a prescription, but a description of life under the curse competition, even in the closest human relationship of marriage. Oh, Lord only knows. And so many of us know in the room, anyone married knows that that for as close as a married couple can be, that is, that, is the, that is where the hardest days can be. The hardest relationship can be the marriage relationship, even as it is the best relationship and a blessing from God. 
No, she's forsaken the giver of life. And so the creation of life, which was and is a blessing, but was to be all blessing, will now be great, great in its, in its pain. And that applies to the raising of kids too. Love kids, love kids, but it is hard. And then for Adam, toil and difficulty. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, verse 17, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's a bad ending. Just as God promised, death will come to humanity. And for the man, it's going to have a lot of hard days at work just as God promised. Well, why are we here? How did we get here? Well, it's true that the serpent set himself against our good and set us against God. And it's true that we set ourselves against God. But the Bible also teaches that we are here where we are, humans, that the headlines are what they are, that the heart lines in our own heart hearts are what they are because God has set himself against us. He's come to us with curses. The earth is cursed, our relationships are cursed, and we are under a curse. There were immediate consequences, and then there are long-term consequences as God put a curse over humanity. God is set against us. In verse 23, coming ahead just a little bit, we find out now how we got geographically outside of the garden. For God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. So it's not just as we consider what's wrong with humanity It's not just that we have trouble with each other and there's conflict between humans and we need conflict resolution help. Although rules and and some tracks to run on and dealing with conflict are always helpful. But at the end of the day, a book uh, to help marriages that just deals with communication techniques, come on. Uh, The problem is we just don't like each other sometimes. The problem is sin in the heart. It's not just we have trouble with each other. And it's not just that we're against God, but God is against us. He has even driven us out of his presence and out of the garden. Consider that we are driven out of the garden. And yet before the Lord drove us out, we were on a kind of personal mission as a couple in Adam and Eve working to drive him out of the garden. For that's what that was in listening to the serpent and taking and eating and giving to the husband and then the husband eating was an act of cosmic high treason against the Lord. We were setting ourselves against him and so he has set himself against us. We are not at home in this world This world as it is, is cold and dark. And remember my parents growing up telling me, when you you grow up, remember that it's cold out there. 
life is hard and they didn't know what was coming for us. But you live long enough and you find out just how hard life is, if not for yourself, for others, and you know you have something coming. It is true. The ground is hard and life is cold. We are not at home with God. But there is hope, for we are not without hope. You notice some things here. Notice that Adam and Eve are driven from the garden, but they're alive. So how does that work? Lord promised that they would surely die. Well, they will surely die, but lo and behold, they have not died right away. In fact, in fact, Adam names his wife Eve in verse 20, mother of all living. Apparently, there will be more life. And not only are there incalculable losses of a variety of kinds, of every kind, And we have here in some 20 verses a description of humanity and its problem, which is more incisive and insightful and profound in its explanation than anything we get anywhere else. We have all of these losses. And yet we have the promise of a profound victory in verse 15. As you're listening in to the Lord's words to the serpent, he'll put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there will be a conflict, we're promised here, and one which will end in victory for a son of the woman and the death of and the end of the one who craftily came to humanity. An indication that God may reverse all of this one day indeed. Well, how did we end up here? I hope you've asked that question. How did we end up here? It's easy for us as humans to watch what other humans are doing and think those humans over there in that group and that part of the world or that part of the country or whatever, down the street, across the street, those are the crazy ones. Those are the bad people. Well, the Bible doesn't let us get away with that. Here is ancient Israel delivered from bondage in Egypt. It's given an account of what has happened here and how did humanity, and they're a part of humanity. This is the story of us all. We all go back to this moment. Now it began with one question. It it advanced with four senses. It gave way to incalculable losses. No use in pretending that life is not hard and death is not real And our relationships are not fraught with trouble. But there is yet another answer to the question, how have we gotten here? And we see it in a pair of clothes. Verses 20 through 24. Let's read this together. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all living. And the Lord God made Adam for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So one reason that we are all here is because of grace. The Lord has driven us out of Eden and he has clothed us with grace. A grace that is common to all humankind because we live and breathe and the sun comes up. Oh, some days, every day we should think, why doesn't God just shut the world down and all of us in a moment? Oh, we should, but he doesn't because of grace. He did not eliminate us, but he sent us out of his 
presence. Frankly, where we would be safer than in his presence because we could not be in the presence of a holy God and live. Driven from the garden, but clothed with grace. And as they look back, we're told here that the cherubim in verse 24, Lord drove out the man and and at east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way. Can you imagine that? To guard the way to the tree of life. That flaming sword and that mighty creature, that being, that cherubim, a sign of the holiness of God, and there is no way back. And that even itself for sinners is grace because there's no way back alive. There is no way back, but there is thankfully a way forward. As God sent us out of the garden, that was his judgment on us to exile us out of our home to send us away. But it wasn't merely that we would be sent out, but we would be sent out clothed, a reminder of his grace, driven out, not snuffed out. And that is the beginning of the rest of the story. You know, Christmas time, it's as though the message at Christmas has become buy gifts and be good. I actually saw a headline, the true joy of Christmas. I would have left the headline alone uh, except for that. The true joy of Christmas, always something you can give to others. Well, there you go. I walked into Lowe's yesterday to get a part to install a dishwasher in my house and I walked by a sign that said gifts and there are all kinds of hammers and wrenches and things like Ooh, people are so generous we are all so generous and I get it gift giving is a good thing and all of that but the subtle message that we can pick up in a season like this is be good by gifts but the message of Christianity is at the same time discouraging Because be good by gifts isn't so discouraging. It doesn't mean to be. And profoundly encouraging. Hope giving. It puts us in our helpless place. And it gives us incomparable hope. For the message of the Bible is you are not good. Read Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. It is a description of us. You are not good. Here is a gift. The Lord has driven us out of the garden. How did we get here? Well, in the first place, that is how we got here. We moved against God first, and now God has moved against us. And so if there is any answer for us, humanity, then it will have to come from God, for he made all things. He has driven us out of our home, his presence. Turn with me to the gospel of John. Now with this, I just want you to get your eyes on some of the scriptures with which we opened the morning service and song that are so beautiful and that we believe. Gospel of John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament and your index should get you there just fine. And it's fine to listen as well. John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This world, this Genesis 3 and 4 world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet go figure, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become wonder of wonders, grace of grace, to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, of course, but born of the will of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. So here is the good news this morning for sinners in Adam who have been driven by God out from the presence of God. Hopeless otherwise that God has come down for us. And in this beautiful message, we find an invitation to come to him. For to all who received him, yes, they may become children of God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this Christmas message, as we call it. A message that goes all the way back to the very first pages of this ancient, ancient book. This book is about that message. And Father, help us not to miss it today. Help us not to miss the profound truth that though you have driven us out, you have come after us. You drove us out in judgment, but also in grace, for you did not snuff us out, and for that we thank you. Father, we don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to breathe. We don't deserve to live. We don't deserve to enjoy all of the good gifts that you give to us. We aren't thankful like we ought to be, and you're so patient with us, and you're so gracious with us, and we know that. We know that just for sure because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. For he came and for he lived among us and he died to take our sins away and to take our shame away and to give us new life in him. And so Father, now as we ponder what we've heard, we give you thanks and praise that there is a way back to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.